Welcome to Reality Check, the podcast that helps teenagers find their own answer to the common question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm Ariana, your host, and today I'm excited to interview Michael Kaplinkalaire, who is an elected official. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give us a quick rundown of your current position? I'm actually not currently an elected official. I am off out of office, but I was an elected official for, let's see, 18 years. I was on two different school boards, and then I was on the Tompkins County Legislature for 12 years, the last two of those being chair of the legislature. What did you want to be when you were a teenager? Well, I was actually quite sure, this is very interesting, I was quite sure I did not want to be a politician because in my teen years, I had somewhat close contact with the political world because my mom was involved in politics. And I told myself, probably unconsciously, I really know what it's like to be manipulated in life. And I don't want to be in a position where I would be be possibly manipulating others. And I saw politicians in that realm that they played to different audiences. So I really told myself, no, you don't want to do that because you really want to help people not have a big ego and try to, you know, make a difference through persuasion and all that. Mm-hmm. But what, what, what did I want to do? I think a lawyer. I'm pretty sure I wanted, I was thinking about law school. So did you end up going to law school? After my undergraduate, I decided to go into planning. I got a master's in regional planning. That was a different way of trying to, I, I would use the phrase, build community. Thankfully, I came from a family that really thought a lot about trying to make a contribution back to the community. And I was very interested in the time in solar energy and wind energy. Actually, my master's thesis was about wind energy in New York State. And I wanted to use my understanding of alternative energy and energy efficiency in general, because this was in the 70s. And there was kind of a a crisis in the early 70s about energy in in the United States and sustainability. I wanted to use that to improve communities. As an elected official, you focus mainly on energy management, correct? Yes, but uh, as you might be aware, elected officials, there's a phrase, you have to have a lot of awareness. So it's like you cover a mile wide of issues, but typically only an inch deep, as opposed to becoming an expert in one field and going very deep. And so as an elected official, and this is a county elected official role. So it's an upstate New York County that has 100,000 residents. You have everything from roads and bridges to health, to public safety, you know, even education and youth services, aging services. So you have quite a breadth of topics that you have to be able to make a decision on. And thankfully, there's other legislators who have different skill sets. I happen to have, you know, as I mentioned, planning skills, but I also had budgeting skills So I could rely on them in their particular field to give me advice and they would be on certain committees and they would take leadership and I could ask them questions. I could say, I really trust your judgment. I think I'm going to go along with your recommendation and they could do the same with me. So we all didn't have to become mini experts in every single field. I did use a lot of my planning skills, not just in planning communities, which is what part of the skills are, but also in planning, how do you build community more broadly, whether it's in the health field, whether it's in social services. And so I used a lot of data analysis, but also I would say 
relationship skills, which you learn through through planning as well. Walk us through in college how you, after college, I guess, how you got from planning to politics. That's a good question. So I took a master's degree, as I mentioned, in in regional planning. And during that master's program, I took a course on child abuse and neglect. And the person who was teaching that course was, in my estimation, really excellent. They, they made it come alive in terms of what the needs are in, time, in, the, in the world, but also in New York State. And I had never, ever considered becoming like a caseworker. But at the end of the course, the person just happened to say kind of lightly, if one wants to go into this field, one avenue could become a caseworker at your local social services. So I applied, never even knew about this whole field uh, called civil service, where you're basically a public servant and you you apply to different roles to serve your community, but it's through a civil service test. So I studied for the test. I did well in those days. It was the mid 70s. Well, actually, this was early 80s. Typically, when you got a public a civil service role, you only got it when someone else in that role retired or stepped aside. And so you didn't ever overlap with them. And so you typically would go into a job with maybe a two or three month lag after someone's already left and you had not that much training. I was very lucky. They knew that this particular person was going to retire well in advance. So they advertised and I applied and then got hired. And I I was able to overlap with the person who I was going to step into their shoes for two weeks. And it was so invaluable to have that person who was also a caseworker uh, introduce me to the various families I'd be working with. I could go to court with him and see the, the dynamics. So it was a steep learning curve, but I really was so glad. In, in general, there's three sectors in society, right? There's public sector, there's private sector, and there's a nonprofit sector. And in a sense, social services, which I got involved in after my planning degree, kind of combined the nonprofit sector and the government sector. It's a helping agency, social services. And then subsequently, I got involved in other nonprofit agencies after I left the social services casework arena after about four years. Was there a specific reason that you didn't stick with that? It was internal politics. I really was passionate about helping people. And unfortunately, some of the internal leadership was getting some direction from, at that time, somewhat of a, a conservative county administration saying we have to cut back expenses. And so they would stop doing things like training, training for the people who are supposed to help people. And I thought that was ludicrous. And so I got involved in a union and I did a lot of advocacy and we negotiated a good contract, but it slowly kind of wore me down. Like we shouldn't have to fight to help people. We shouldn't have to have internal fights. We did well in terms of getting funding because we appealed to the public and, and the public that we were involved in was sympathetic. So they then lobbied the government to release some funds. But ultimately, I felt like that's not how I want to spend a lot of my energy. I want to be really directly helping people, not fighting all these internal battles to get the resources to help people well. So then I went into the nonprofit sector, same general field of social services, the helping profession in a variety of roles. Well, you mentioned that you were on the school board for a while. What was it that drew you to that specific area of 
Well, as I had mentioned, I had kind of told myself in high school, I never want to become a politician. So I was doing human services, social services work in general for various nonprofits. One of them, actually, we, we were out of the country for two two years working in a native community, which was very eye-opening. But upon coming back, we had to register our kids for school again. And in the hallway of that school, someone who I knew, a friend in the community, walked up to me and said, Mike, you want to run for the school board? And the context for that was the present school board was having a big, big problem. There was someone who was pretty overtly racist, and there was also some school board members of color on the school board. And so they were having conflict, open conflict, almost like yelling matches. And so when she approached me and said, Mike, do you want to be on the school board? I thought, I don't think so. But then she said, well, you can do a better job than they're doing. And so I thought, well, she's actually probably right about that. I'm, I wouldn't be openly, openly yelling in trying to set policy for school, school district. So I decided to run. I thought, you know, I have kids in the school. I have all this good experience in the community. Um, I think I'd get be able to get support. And it's only about two or three months of quote campaign. It's pretty low key. And so, and then it's a three-year term. That very first election, I did not have the support of my wife because we had four young children. And she said, what are you thinking? How can you possibly have time for the school board in addition to your regular job, in addition to helping out with the family? The good news is I didn't win that first election, but having run, when someone stepped down about six months later, and they stepped down six months before their normal term would end, the school board had to look for someone to fill the last six months. And they said, well, Mike Kaplinkalaire was the fourth candidate, you know, three of them got elected. He's the logical one. So they actually appointed me for six months. And that was a perfect chance to have my family and myself get the idea of, well, what is this commitment? Will it really take a ton of time away from the family? And it turned out I was able to fit it in in a relatively reasonable way. So I still had time for family, still had time for work, and felt like I could make a commitment. And then I ran again, and this time I had the support of my wife and family and kids, of course, and I did win. And in, uh, in those three years, I really felt like I make a, made a, a helpful contribution to our school. What was your current job at the time, like your main job? I actually was working for social services. So I was at that time, actually that's not true. I had left social services. We'd gone to Labrador for two years. So I came back. I was working for a nonprofit organization called Learning Web, which was helping young people. This is very interesting, given what you're doing, helping young people explore careers. It, Learning Web tried to place people with a mentor-apprentice type relationship all around the community, whether you wanted to be a veterinarian, whether you wanted to be a rocket scientist, whether you wanted to be a librarian. Before you went into that career field, they would let you experience it by kind of job shadowing somebody for anyone anywhere from you know a few weeks to six months to a year, try it out. Some of them, there was a particular part of the Part of the community that would get a stipend because they might be more at risk and a stipend would be a incentive to stick with it and other kids were fairly well off and didn't need the stipend so we had quite a diversity of students all across the county so i was working for that organization as their director 
and I had a good window into the needs of the community. So when I ran, I was able to articulate what some of the school needs were. At the end of the three years, a person who had been on the county legislature in the district that I lived in, she'd been on that county legislature for 16 years. She was well known. She did a really good job and she was quite a strong advocate. She was, she knew that she was stepping down. And about nine months before someone would have to go to the polls to elect a new person to replace her, she approached me and she said, I've been looking around this particular district that I represent and you live in it and I can't find anybody else, but you seem to have a knack for the school board. Would you consider running for the county legislature? And at this point, I had kind of gotten over my fear of becoming a politician. Mm -hmm. And so I said, sure. And when I got her endorsement, that meant a lot because she had a lot of good, positive reputation in the community. And then, of course, I did campaign pretty hard as well. So that first campaign was successful and I was elected to the county legislature and was able to get reelected for two more terms. So a total of 12 years on the county legislature. Congrats. Thanks. Do you think your first job of being on the school board prepared you? How different do you think it would have been going on to the county legislature without that experience? It was very helpful, I think. And there are people who've done the county legislature without that. But I think you do have to have a really good sense of the community you're representing. So when one would think about running for elected office, and there's lots of different levels of elected office. There's everything from dog catcher to, uh, to you know, a congressional representative and senator and those kinds of things in state. I think you really do have to pause and plan ahead so that you feel like you have a good pulse on the community you want to represent. So being involved in the community is one way. You can be a volunteer, you can, your work profession can get you involved in the community. You can take on, as, as you inferred, kind of lower level elected, elected roles that will give you experience in uh, making policy decisions, gathering all the information necessary, working with colleagues to come to a healthy decision. So that is a really good way to get that kind of experience. I have a young person in our church that was thinking of getting involved in politics, and he said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to actually go in the military first and then come out and use that experience as a springboard to go into elected, become an elected official. And I thought that was really wise that he had political science background, he had history background, but he going into the military gives you a whole different kind of perspective on policy and uh, certainly discipline and regimen and a good perspective. That's actually one thing that I would say, no matter what your background is, and people do come to elected official roles from a variety of backgrounds, whether you're a minister or whether you're a business person or, you know, come from a a nonprofit social services sector like I did. I think the one word that I would say is so invaluable is to try to bring perspective. And what does that mean to bring perspective? You have to have enough exposure in the community, enough experience to know essentially gradations of priority. Perspective lets you say, well, this, a lot of people are going to be very passionate about a lot of things, 
And they're going to be knocking on my door saying, you should make this the most important thing. And you should make this the most important thing. And have a perspective as to how this all fits together into the general well-being, the general health, the general growth of our community in a way that you have a long-term idea that it's going to be successful as opposed to a short-term thing. And perspective is one thing that will help you do that. And I, I typically tried to bring what I would call a long-term perspective. And I even thought generally in a 50-year perspective, most people generally only think about the term that they're in office. And most people want to get reelected. So they think part way in their term, I have to make all these moves to be able to get reelected. And I th thought, you know, I'm not really going to worry about getting reelected. I want to look to long-term so that whatever decision I make will be healthy for the next generation. And I think I was generally successful in that, but I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of the people who tried to make you change your points, over your 12 years of campaigning throughout your different terms, what points do you think you stayed strong with, like you kept throughout the whole time? You're asking very good questions, Ariana. So one, one thing was education. So I thought it was very valuable to consistently try to educate the community members about what the heck's going on in the decisions we we're making. So to have community meetings, to have public education forums. And I was, I think part, part of this is from my planning background. I was very keen on it. This is not just going to be a dog and pony show to take something out in the community, put up a banner and a, and a you know, maybe some data on the wall and say, this is what we're planning. What do you think? No, I did not think that would be a very useful way for people to actually give real and meaningful feedback. So we would take a lot of time to plan. How can we get meaningful feedback? Whether it's we're thinking of redesigning this road or we'd like some feedback on the three-year plan for our Department of Health or we have a budget meeting. Of course, every year there's a budget. We'd like to educate you about what's in this budget. A budget document is actually putting money to what are the priorities of the community. A lot of people, their eyes glaze over the second they hear the word budget or money or, you know, any dollars bigger than, you know, say a thousand dollars. Oh, I'm not facile. I'm not, I'm not with it enough to follow. So I will trust those guys or I won't trust those guys or women who are doing that. And they don't necessarily take time to think, wow, you're increasing a budget over here and you're decreasing a budget over here. I have an opinion about that. So we spent some time trying to, when we had a community forum, we would actually spend about two hours educating the community. They could go table to table about different topics. They could actually engage with the people from the committee who are trying to make those recommendations and ask questions. And then we'd go into a larger group meeting and say, now you've had a little bit of time to digest our proposals, our recommendations, and what the process was to even come to that from getting input from department heads, getting input, in, input from the people that are being served, getting input from the administration, et cetera, in terms of the tax levy and balancing all that. And here's the overall presentation. Now, have your say. Tell us that we're full of crap or tell us that we have some good ideas or that we're a little bit off over here and we should increase this or we should decrease that. And that, that felt like it was much more meaningful engagement. And sometimes when we had more significant 
policy changes, we would have a series of meetings. We'd have a series of community focus groups around the community. So this is a county that's 450 square miles, 100,000 people. So it has some rural areas, it has some downtown areas. So we would, we would actually meet in various, various spots to make it as accessible as possible for people to weigh in. And of course, once social media and other, other ways of weighing in became available, we used those as much as possible to maximize ways because people are busy, right? Mm-hmm. Most people in this era, they're inundated. They're deluged with information, 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 advertising. We can hardly, you know, pick up our glance and not be deluged. And so how do you how do you say, I have a very full life, but I, I want, it's very important for me, whether you're a school board member or whether you're a county legislature and you're weighing in on a budget, I want to convey this to you, but I hardly have time to educate myself. So we're constantly aware of that. And how can we deliver information in a way that is easy for you to understand, not talking down to you, but explaining it in simple common sense terms and asking for input in a re- relatively easy way. So that was a key, key priority. The subject topic was to, to reach out to the community in a real way and ask for feedback in a real way, and then actually ad- adapt our behavior in a real way. One of the, the key balancing acts in any community is what can you afford? And so we would have a lot of people who would say, I can't pay any more taxes. Don't you dare raise it a penny. Mm-hmm. And of course, you had a lot of people saying, we need more. We need more of this. We need more of that. Please. I'm desperate. You know, our community is desperate. This particular need is so important. You're overlooking it. Wow. That's hard, right? So I think we looked at our, enti- at one point, we looked at our entire budget process and we realized, wow, the process that we're even following is a little bit backwards. What we were doing was we were asking the department heads and the committees to make a recommendation what was needed. Okay, so you march into the budget process with all the needs. Well, guess what? You start, you actually start the entire budget that you framed with lots of high needs. Your tax rate's gonna go up 16%. And then as you get input from people, then you have to whittle down, 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 down. Well, guess how hard it is if you're a legislator to start at 16% and people get hopeful who have lobbied for those things and you have to whittle down. Mm -hmm. What we did was we changed the process and we said, let's actually get input from the community first. What is sustainable? What is affordable? And most times, I have to be really honest, most times people said, the most that I can stretch is cost of living. Try not to go above cost of living. Okay. So then we would, we would three months before the budget process would even start, we would give a guideline to our departments. All right. You've heard it from the community. Cost of living guideline. Whatever you do in terms of all the needs out there, I don't care if there's a hurricane or a building collapsed. I don't care. You know, try, you know, emergency response, whatever. Try to craft a budget that meets those needs and meets that affordable guideline from the community. So then guess what happened? We start a budget process slightly below that cost of living guideline. Then it becomes a little bit easier. You're, you're, you have every department saying, all right, we're meeting the guideline. If you get a little bit more money, you can put this in, but if not, we can manage. And all of a sudden, then you, then you have 
a little bread basket of needs that are being put out there. If we meet the cost of living guideline, we still can survive. We still can do well. We can cut back over here. That's not internally, we've already decided it's not as key a priority based on our stakeholders. And then we can add over here if the community really lobbies for it and think they, thinks they can afford it. But we know what the guideline is. And all of a sudden, the entire process became, oh, we were evaluating priorities against priorities. And we were able to say, oh, we, we overlooked that one. We, we, are, it, it, we are willing to add that one back in. Or this one still is a little bit too high for roads and bridges. We think we can get by without redoing that road on the same uh, repavement plan. So something like that seems so mundane, seems so boring. But to actually change a process that can help healthfully balance these two main factors, what can we afford and what are the emerging needs, helped elected officials come out looking much more rosier, much more like they're the heroes as opposed to the Grinch. So over your 18 years in office, what do you think the biggest effect you've had on your community has been? Well, I think those those two things would be perspective and budgeting in general are my my strengths. Mm-hmm. I, I led the I led the budget committee for four years before I was elected to be chair of the legislature. I brought the same sense of perspective. So you know, if some if a big crisis happened in a community, you have to weigh how even though this is a huge crisis, where does it fit in the priority scheme? And that's that's a sense of perspective. Another thing that I think was very key that I think a lot of people have come up to me and said they appreciate it is, and again, it's perspective. How do you think about who's being included and who's not being included? What voices are not at the table? And how you frame, and this is, this is my words, kind of a safe environment for dialogue. So suppose you have a really contentious issue. Let's say racism in Tompkins County. Okay, we want to we want to address this, and how can we address it in a healthy way? You get to frame even how the dialogue is is discussed, how it's digested, how recommendations go forward. You look at your entire process to make sure what's missing. How how can people again feel safe weighing in, whether they're a legislator or a citizen? So all that takes a lot of planning, and that planning background planning agendas, planning for processes that have healthy input, planning with adequate time, planning with adequate resources. So you have staff doing research or, you know, community volunteers sometimes doing doing research. You think well in advance, which is planning, about the process so that it becomes a container for all the voices to come to a, a reasonable conclusion with some guidance which is what, if you're doing a good job as chairing a committee or chairing a meeting, guiding well. That takes a lot of thought. And I don't care whether it's a small in-school club or whether it's, you know, the national political scene. Planning ahead, including voices, getting a balanced perspective, I think is the the long-term success that you can feel good about no matter what the outcome is. In the beginning, you mentioned that you absolutely did not want to be a politician when you were younger because you didn't want to become manipulative. Do you think you stood by those morals so far? Yes. I kind of internally made a pledge that I would never twist anybody's arm. And I really stuck with that. You know, there were there were some tough, tough 
battle, so to speak, politically. But I just put out my thinking. I had one particular mentor who I thought was really good. He was very skilled. What he would do is he certainly had his opinions, right? He happened to be chair of legislature before I was chair of legislature. And his his approach, I thought, was excellent. He was able to consistently digest other people's opinion who may disagree with him. And then as chairing the legislature, he would be able to, you know, of course, you're calling on people and they're passionate about their different positions. And sometimes they get so passionate, they get a little over the line in terms of possibly name calling. He was able to summarize both sides or even three or four, three or four sides, right? He was able to digest it and summarize it well so that you as the person who held that position felt heard. And then he would weigh in with his opinion, with his thinking, taking into consideration the opposing position. But you've heard because he summarized it. Then he said his logic, generally logical, reasonable approach. And so then you, you weren't as righteous in coming back and saying, oh, you didn't get it. Because you heard him summarize your position and you heard him after summarizing your position, give kind of a reasonable assessment of where he thought one should go. So that in general, I think is a, is a healthy approach. So I stuck with that. I decided I'm not going to manipulate people. I will help summarize their arguments and I won't ever, even when I had kind of to the mat votes where you had to count the votes. And I was, you know, I, I was up for being elected uh, chair again, for instance, and somebody else wanted to be chair. And that person, in my opinion, was doing a lot of behind the door, you know, not quite arm twisting, but, you know, persuasion, making promises, et cetera. I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be straight. You know, do I have your support? You know, what, what are your priorities? I'm not going to promise you a committee assignment, for instance. And I think that was a healthy way to go. And I can, I can look myself in the mirror, hold my, set, hold my head up in the community, and also achieve the goals of building community. Because I actually do believe, you know, you need a lot of voices, a a lot of differing voices in the room to come to a healthy conclusion. And I typically kind of a corollary to your question or like my corollary answer to your question is I typically tried not to get invested in the outcome. I believe that if all the right voices were in the room and all the healthy, even if they're very diverse opinions were aired in, in, a, in a safe environment with an adequate resources and adequate time frame. A really good decision would emerge, and I I don't have to have my decision, my priority, my expected outcome to be the one. And I was able to kind of let go of, of a particular outcome and and trust the process. So switching gears a little bit, what would an average day look like for you when you were in office? So at the local county legislature level, a lot of people who are on the county legislature also have a job. So a typical day is you're balancing your job, whether it's a full-time job or a part-time job, you're balancing your family, and then you're balancing all these legislative priorities. So a typical day is you are looking, of course, consistently ahead. You're planning ahead at your committee assignments. You're doing your homework for the committee assignments. If you're leading the committee, you're actually planning the agenda with input from committee members, with input from the staff who might be the department that is affected, whether it's social services or health or roads and bridges or public safety. So it's a lot of planning. So generally two weeks in advance, 
of a meeting, if not more, you've pretty much crafted an agenda and you're putting it out for feedback and then you're adapting. So you're not, I'm not giving you a typical day, but I'm giving you the kinds of things that you have to think about. So you, your typical day includes doing your regular job, meeting the needs of your regular family, and then fitting in a committee assignment, a leadership position, a community meeting. You're typically going to probably, I hate to say it, probably four to five meetings a week in the community. That might be a community organization that you're interested in or one that you get invited to be on the board of, or you're just so interested that you are out in the community participating in the in the churn, so to speak, of what's really going on at the ground level. So you're in, you're clued in. You might be going to a rally. You might be going, uh, you might be you're certainly meeting with people privately, con- constituents, people you represent because they have concerns. And then you're doing a lot of reading. You're digesting tons of information that gets sent you before a meeting. Some you might generate yourself. Some you might be on a committee that somebody else is generating. And then you are meeting with colleagues. It's, Sometimes you have what's called a caucus so that you, before the actual meeting, you can begin to digest together. Okay, I'm not an expert in that particular field. I'm over on this committee, but you are. So can you give me a a little debriefing on that roads and bridges proposal? And I'll give you a debriefing on the social services proposal so we can be up to speed. Explain this one resolution. Explain this motion. Explain the background. Oh, is that what's really happening? Now I get it. Okay. Now, before my meeting, I'm going to make a few phone calls so I can understand a little bit more. So lots of reading, lots of research. And then, of course, you have the dynamics of a vote. And that always is very, very interesting. You have to kind of let things go when you lose and not get too haughty when you when you win. Those meetings between committee meetings and full legislature meetings, that's probably that alone is probably eight to 10 hours a week. And then you have eight to 10 hours a week of community meetings. And you probably have eight to 10 hours a week of preparatory agenda setting or phone calls or reading all the stuff you got to read, digesting it. And then you get to write speeches. You get to make a speech from the floor. Why am I passionate about this? Could I possibly persuade that other colleague across the table named Ariana that I actually have some good thinking about this and, you know, maybe she can agree with me because I've put out my best thinking and she, th- she realizes, oh, that Mike guy, he's done his research and I haven't done as much. He's actually talked to people on the ground that are affected by it. I'm going to trust his judgment. I think I'm going to vote with him or, or not. But, but that's, you know, you, I literally, I'm a long distance runner. And so I would typically carry a notepad in my pocket and I would kind of in my head draft some of my speeches I'm going to make you know, and passion speeches from the floor about why this is so important or, you know, trying to to change my language from you doofus, don't you dare vote for this to, oh, here's a positive reason for doing that, that kind of thing. If someone was looking to go into politics in the future, would you recommend that they start by like going into school for politics or would you recommend starting somewhere else and then slowly leading in? I would say if you at all can, and it's not always possible, in the community you intend to try to seek elected office in, get involved in the community in some way, whether that's through your work or through a volunteer activity or through a neighborhood association. But 
but get get yourself engaged so that you have your ear to the ground and you kind of yourself, you understand some of the dynamics, but then you get to be known as someone who understands those dynamics. So you, you know, you could, you could start just selling Girl Scout cookies. You could start, you know, just shoveling someone's lawn who's elderly. I mean, mowing their lawn or shoveling the snow, you know, ways to engage. I was a paper boy, for instance, in my neighborhood. I was a boy scout, you know, I lived in the community that I was representing for a really long time. So I knew certain neighbors and they could say, you know, that guy, I knew him back when he was a tyke. He's got good character or yeah, I knew him back when he was a tyke and he was a troublemaker, you know? <laughs> so just get involved, get engaged. It doesn't have to be paid. It doesn't have to be an elected role. You can be involved in your church, right? You can be in lots of different, uh, you could be involved in a yoga association, uh, you know, little league softball, whatever, whatever gets you excited, but it's a way of giving back to the community. And then you begin to see these connections between, oh, our youth have needs. Oh, our seniors have needs. Oh, our roads are breaking up. How can I do something about this unsafe condition? So that's the first step, getting right. engaged in your community in a way that you are excited about. And when they would approach college, what kind of major, I guess, would be helpful in this area? Typically, it's political science. It could be history, you know, basic economics. Those are some of, the, some of the key fields that you have to address. I would say it's very, very useful to balance your checkbook <laughs> and uh, understand larger economic aspects because a lot of people, unfortunately, too many people, their brains turn off with math. And economics in general, I think, oh, that's too sophisticated for me. Well, actually, it's how our world runs. And the more you can understand it, the more you can weigh in knowledgeably to influence it. And if someone does not go to college, how what would that path look like to becoming an elected official? Again, it's getting involved in the community. So suppose you went through a trade and you're you're in a, in a field that you're still making a contribution. I worked alongside tradespeople a lot in some of my various roles, like I mentioned energy management. And so some of those tradespeople who might be uh, sophisticated in uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, for, for instance, or auto mechanics, they were still involved in their community. They were coaching soccer or, or they were involved in their faith community, or they were, you know, could be involved in a book club or you know, a volunteer activity in their local community in some way. And so they became known as someone to go to with a problem that they sometimes knew how to find a resource to address that problem. So I think consistency also is, you know, stick with it because there's a lot of people, you know, our society typically is instant gratification. And a lot of people want to be a flash in the pan and make, make a big difference and then kind of move on well actually to have a track record of consistent contribution to the community again whether you're a volunteer or a paper boy or some other way that you're helping people out you're getting known and you're you're learning so it's a two-way street right okay and then one final question for you what advice do you have for someone who has no idea what they want to be when they grow up explore do exactly the kind of thing that you're doing. Talk to people that you have in your life and ask them, 
what's it like being a carpenter? What's it like being a beautician? You know, what's it like being on that road crew? Just have, have be curious. And mm-hmm. once you ask about that, and this is a this is a little known fact, little known secret. If you ask people about their lives, they like to share. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead and ask. Be curious. You're getting your haircut. Ask. You're, you're uh, you know, you're you're in some sort of department store or you know Target or something. You know, what's it like being a cashier? Uh, you know, how's that manager working out over there? You know, these mm-hmm. various dynamics. The second thing I would say generally is relationships, relationships, relationships. Understand what it takes to get along with people, to work out differences, because no matter what you do, you're going to have to understand how to make your way in the world with people who differ from you in a positive way. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for you today. Thank you for your time. If any of our listeners have questions for Mike, you can contact him at mak11 at cornell.edu. That's mak11 at c-o-r-n-e-l-l dot e-d-u. Before we wrap up, who do you want me to interview next? Teacher, park ranger, baker, author? Email me your ideas at realitycheckpodcast10 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.